one of the things that's unique about our church is we're a teaching hospital. What that means practically as, as the lead pastor, I don't preach every Sunday. I preach 40 Sundays of the year, and we leave the other 12 Sundays as we're raising up the next generation of preachers. Many people come through here. They learn how to preach while they're here. They go out to plant churches. Some plant domestically. Some plant internationally. Some go and take over existing churches. But from time to time, we will raise up a preacher among us who will stay with us. It is very rare. But it does happen on occasion. And this morning is one of those occasions where you get to hear from one of those men. His name is Curtis Watson. Curtis has been here for many years. Uh, He's a great man of God, a great friend of mine, and many of you know him. He's a graduate of Moody Bible Institute with a BA in in theology. He has preached here before. He's led groups in our church before. He has a great wife, Stephanie, and uh, they have five wonderful children. And just to show you that I, I trust this guy, I am trusting him to finish the book of 1 Samuel. So, Curtis, no pressure, brother. Come on up here. If you are like me, each Sunday you come in here with just a myriad of emotions and distractions. If, if I'm just gut-level honest. I'm not going to dance around the truth that often when I'm sitting there, uh, I am uh, usually the happiest just because there's free childcare, there's free nursery. Just that's a pro tip for y'all, okay? Stick around. There's stuff here for them. And for just a little bit, I don't have to unplug a toilet. I don't have to fix a garage door. I don't have to change a diaper. And that's just when I'm off work. Um, I, but I know often uh, as, as these different people lead us in songs, and, and uh, it's often by like the second or third note of the first or second song that I realize that I'm hungry. Have you ever had that, like all of a sudden, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom? Like, it just kind of surprises you. I realize in the middle of that, I'm hungry and thirsty for something from my God. And I think that's something supernatural. And I don't think I'm alone. I think that happens to many of us. We come in here often not expecting much, and God is going to do something great. Well, we're a church that we don't, we don't skip over passages of Scripture that are necessarily a little hard to look at. We do what we call expository preaching here, where we go book by book by book. That's why sometimes, you know, we're on a, a Mother's Day and we're on uh, some bizarre passage that has nothing to do with mothers or something like that. And today is one of those times where we take a look at maybe an uncomfortable passage of Scripture. We're going to take a long, unflinching look at the conclusion of a cautionary tale in the, in the story of King Saul. His, um, we're going to find out what happens when a powerful leader rebels against his God. This is one of those odd sections of Scripture that at first glance seems like God is nowhere to be found. His people, his king, his armies are wiped out at the hands of their people. And a very, very different news goes out across the promised land. News of a victory against God's people and his king. Before we conclude the book of 1 Samuel, we need to take a quick, just a quick jump and look back. So, if you will, take, travel back with me to when the 12 tribes were underneath Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. 
And there were two great leaders. We start with Moses. And if you remember, just get in your mind the picture of Charlton Heston with that big hipster, hipsterish beard parting the Red Sea, okay? That's a leader, right? He's taking them out of, of uh, captivity. And then we have Joshua because Moses couldn't go into the promised land. And then we have Joshua, faithful leader, takes the people and cleans out the promised land. And it's paradise, right? For the next, no? No, it's not. For the next two to 300 years, there's a phrase that, that we can just say about that time. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It sounds awful. It's a lawless and mostly godless time. It's a cycle where the people sin. God raises up, or the people sin, they suffer. God raises up a leader to lead them out of deliverance and in repentance. And then they sin, and then they suffer. It's sin, suffering, supplication, salvation, over and over again. Wash, rinse, and repeat. Two to three hundred years. Sounds great, doesn't it? And so the people, they look at the nations around them, and they say, we want a strong king. We've got these Philistines, and they just keep bugging us. We want a strong king, but we want him to be like the other nation's kings. And so God gives them what they want. God gave them a tall, handsome warrior with great potential. And over and over again, this king, like the other nations, chooses his own path instead of heeding God's plan and instruction for his life. Saul's end, if you've been with us these last few weeks, Saul's end has been a long time coming. And we're given a fly-on-the-wall perspective of his last moments and the subsequent fallout. This is not fun, folks, but God beckons us to not look away from this spectacle. And I promise, as we wrap up this book today, we, like the Israelites, will see just on the horizon a very, very different leader. But let's endure this dark hour for now. Let's pray before we begin, if you'll pray with me. God, we ask that you would help us to understand what your plans, that your plans and your kingship is all we need. Help us to see you for who you really are. We are so prone to make believe you are an uncaring tyrant instead of a loving creator who calls us friend. Give us insight today to your word. In Jesus' name. Let's start in verse 1. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. So the battle has gone about as bad as it could. As Saul and his army became more and more overwhelmed, the king and his sons and what's left of the army, they flee to the higher ground, trying to gain some edge over the Philistines, but to no avail. The only other time in the book of Samuel that we see language like this of defeat against the Israelites is way back in the beginning when God's judgment fell upon the Israelites and especially upon Eli and his corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of power, the symbol of their God was taken into the Philistine camp uh, as the spoils of war. That's the only other time they've they've, uh, suffered a defeat like this. For most of the book, Saul and David, remember, they've killed their thousands and ten thousands as they sing, but not today. So many bodies lay on the mountainside that day that it took, two, it took a few hours before the Philistines realized how successful they had been. It took long into the next day before they realized they had killed Saul and his sons. And we've gotten to know Jonathan 
especially in his relationship with David over the last few months, but also in his relationship with his father. We're meant to stop here. Scripture mentions Jonathan on purpose because we're meant to pause and and look at the carnage around Saul. We're not supposed to see this battle just as Saul getting what he deserved. Jonathan was special. He's very unusual. Often it was Jonathan, the king's son, who went around stamping out the fires his dad had caused. And he deftly navigates his loyalty to his friend David and loyalty to God's anointed king and his father. Scripture tells us, this is so unusual, that he willingly embraced the fact that he would not be the next king. It's it's supremely extraordinary humble actions for the son of a king. We're meant to stop and ponder the carnage. Listen to what David says in 2 Samuel 1.25 when he finds out about his friend's death. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Saul may have had it coming, but Jonathan, his death is meant to counteract that we just think that Saul is getting what he deserved. It is far too often this way in our lives, isn't it? When leaders rebel, the innocent suffer. A cheating husband drags an entire family into chaos and confusion as he pursues his lusts. A mother who should be lovingly and, and selfishly, uh, selfish, selflessly uh, leading her children as they grow instead wastes her time shopping and entertaining her friends, all while her children are left to find their own way and seek other leadership in their lives. A mid-level manager lazily and selfishly manipulates the successes and the hard work of those people underneath him and claims it as his own, all the while the business suffers productivity and profitability. A corrupt politician, we know those stories, right? Misusing funds for their own gain and their own empire. And on and on it goes. If we just sat here and told stories about selfish, rebellious leaders over and over again, we would just keep topping each other. When leaders rebel, the innocent suffer. But here's the thing. As we think about this, it's easy to just think about kings and generals. But we're leaders every day in our lives. And we've talked about this before. As you make decisions on a daily basis. They affect more than a few people. So when you sit in your meetings and you approve of your employees' benefits or as you hire and as you fire, you're a leader. When you plan your lessons for school, you're a leader. When that moment after school till your kids go to bed, your decisions make a difference, you're a leader. When you interact with your friends on a casual basis in your dorm rooms, you're a leader. And when leaders rebel, the innocent get caught up and they suffer. I, the more I get to know everybody here at EBF, and that's a moving target, as Jason said. It, people come and they go. But as I get to know people, I think we're a church of really God-centered leaders. I am often, as I get to know EBFers, since we're in Samuel, we'll call them EBFites, okay? As I get to know them, I'm often like, thinking to myself, I, I should be more like that person when I go home. when leading my family. I should be more like that man in how I think about my work. Don't don't grow weary in taking the, the less selfish path in your leadership in your lives. Unfortunately for Saul's demise, it was far more reaching than the death of his sons and his army's slaughter. And for the moment, we're going to skip down. We're going to leave Saul wounded on Mount Gilboa, and I want to skip down to verse 7 for a moment. Let's read there. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley 
And those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and they fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Again, the entire army is laid waste. And finally, the people living, the Israelites living in the surrounding areas have to flee for their lives for lack of protection. These are mothers. These are seniors. These are farmers. These are cattle herders. These are normal people who drop all their worldly goods and everything they've worked for, and they run for the hills for lack of protection. Real, ordinary lives are completely unhinged as Saul, David, and the Philistines are caught up in this sport of kings. The mighty with their generals are lauded, and the, the defeated are vilified for their overreaching battle strategies. You know when you, when you see documentaries about war and you see that big map, and you see the arrows and the, and the battle fronts coming and going, remember there's people right there living there, and their lives are uprooted, and people are oppressed, and people are marginalized. Not too long ago, a prominent evangelical pastor who led a network of churches was brought down by scandal. And I know what you're thinking. That's not necessarily uh, news. That happens far too often, doesn't it? Well, this one I think is a little more noteworthy because it was not because of unfaithfulness to his family or his wife, which again is, is really a sad tale that that's actually noteworthy. In my opinion, this man's work had seen genuine advances in the, the spread of the gospel, especially among young men. However, over time, as his notoriety, influence, and ultimately some fame grew, his behavior took a turn in his leadership. And some people say that it was always kind of lurking there in the background. But again, as your fame and notoriety and your influence grows, small sins become greater sins. Instead of following in the humble foot-washing, servant way of Jesus, his leadership became more and more domineering and sometimes ruthless. Often he appeared in front of his church swaggering and arrogant in his demeanor in the media as well. And one onlooker, actually it wasn't an onlooker, this was, per, this was another pastor, a counselor who had been brought in to try to mediate the situation and to heal something and try to bring restoration. When he looked back on the situation, he said that it was one of the most abusive environments he had ever witnessed. It's hard to know if this leader does or ever has seen his role in this or if he really feels that he's a victim. But more important than maybe even his fall is the thousands of people who were affected in his congregation and the affiliated congregation in the network of churches that he had led. Thousands of people suffered when he, uh, through his poor leadership. You know, people out in the real world trying to start churches, their funding was cut off. They lost jobs. Others tried to scramble together to try to redirect funding to keep the work ongoing. When leaders rebel, the innocent suffer. It's not a matter of if we will encounter a bad leader in our lives, but when. God has rejected Saul, this king like the other nations, in favor of a man after his own heart, David. David actually points to the greatest king of all, Jesus, who laid down his life for the people. Saul does the complete opposite. He lays down lives for his own sake and for his own gain. When leaders rebel, the innocent suffer. As we read on, we're going to keep going here. We're actually going to go back to Saul in verse 3, and let's, let's get a close-up view of what happens next. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come, and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared 
greatly. And therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And thus Saul died with his three sons and his armor bearer and all of his men on the same day together. The last time I had a chance to prepare a sermon was a few months ago, and I had the rare privilege of being able to uh, pick my own uh, passage, and therefore my own topic. Not this time. Uh, I was pretty excited, though, because I knew I was going to be preaching in 1 Samuel, and so I was excited once I, you know, I, I could dig in, because really, honestly, there's, a, there's Shakespearean-level drama, right, in this book. There's kings, there's heroes, there's giants, there's heirs to the throne, there's usurpers to the throne, there's invading hordes, there's multiple invading hordes. We'll throw in some witches and ghosts on top of that. This is some exciting stuff. So what did I get? Saul, dead on a mountain. What am I supposed to say? Don't be Saul. Let's, let's sing some more great songs. Where is the shepherd turned warrior, King David, who slew the giant? Where is Samuel in his Obi-Wan Kenobi-like fashion, guiding the Israelites and, and advising the kings and anointing leaders? Where is God at all? And then in my research, I came across a statement that made it all kind of come together for me, and I want to read this. John Woodhouse, in his commentary on these verses, says this, At the heart of the tragedy is what we do not hear from Saul. From him we do not hear, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly alone, Saul took the only course of action he could see. You see, listen to this, it's God's deafening absence at the end of all things here for Saul that screams the lesson we are to learn. Saul doesn't see God. He doesn't appeal to God. He merely loses the battle and kills himself to end the pain. All through Saul's life, he experiences fear. He takes matters into his own hands. Saul is afraid of being king. Saul is afraid of Samuel. Saul is afraid of the people. Saul is afraid of the Philistines. Saul is basically afraid of David every other day. Saul is afraid of everything except God. From very early on in his leadership, Saul is marked by the deep flaw of insecurity. This is not humility, and sometimes we think of of it that way. It's ungodly insecurity. This insecurity drives his actions and causes his downward spiral. Saul lived a life ignoring and forsaking the guidance and discipline of his God, choosing instead to give in to his fears, and this brief account, very brief account, of the king's death is the godless death to cap off his godless life. For the record, 1 Samuel, you know, Saul's foil is David. David is our contrast. David experiences fear after fear after fear. He's in some precarious positions. It's not experiencing the fear that distinguishes David from Saul. It's what they do with it. At the same time as Saul went to that witch in Endor, David is strengthening himself in the Lord. We heard about this last week. David is in a position where the Amalekites have attacked and burned the city he called home. They've taken away his family. His army is mutinous around him. And what does he do? Does he get a harpist to play calming music in his throne room like Saul? Does he throw a spear at his general? No, David moves off on his own, and he seeks guidance and strength from God. Listen to what David says in Psalm 22, 1 through 8. David writes, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And I cry by night and I find no rest. You are holy. You are enthroned in the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. I remember what you've done. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Listen to David. That's just a conversation. He talks to God day and night. He's weary in soul. He does this so much that at the end of that section, he's talking about how people criticize him for it. It's almost like David wrote the book on crying out to God. Last week, my wife and I received some really difficult news. Many of you know that we are foster parents to a little girl. She's just shy of three years old. And she's been with us since she was six months old. We're not, we're not at all seasoned foster parents. This is our first time. We just saw we had an extra bedroom and we jumped right in. And we've known all along that the goal of foster care is that birth parents get into a situation where they are deemed ready to take the child back. And that's, it's, it's one thing to mentally affirm that someday this child would be or might be leaving our care. And it's another to be told that it could happen all of a sudden with almost no warning in a few days, more or less. For two and a half years, this little girl has just been another one of us crazy Watsons. And so when we received this news last Saturday, it shook and it continues to shake us. We've had many tears, and we've had an overwhelming sense of helplessness at our role in this situation. And basically, it's the heartbreaking realization that we can't control the future for her or for us. Uh, After a couple of days of, of pretty deep grief, I had a surge of desire for action to change the situation. Much of my motivation in this was right and good, and I'm not going to get into the details of, of, what, uh, of what happened. But if I'm honest on a deeper level, some of my action was motivated by a desire to take the matter into my own hands and to find my own solution. Listen, deep down, I fear over and over in my life that God will do something that to me will be unnecessarily harmful, maybe to those around me, maybe to those I care about, and I'm not ready for that. I want control. And so I I sharpen up my modern day sword called a smartphone and I, I fire off texts and I send emails and I follow up with phone calls. And all the while that I'm taking this vertical action, I'm taking less and less, uh, I'm sorry, the horizontal action. I'm taking less and less vertical action of resting in God and, and seeking God and seeking strength in my God. As my wife and I process this news, and even as some of it thankfully seems to have changed, at least for now, we talked about how we had contacted different people informing them of what was happening and asking for prayer on behalf of this child. And and she made a statement, and I'll I'll try to paraphrase. She said this, I wonder what God thinks about our flare prayers in situations like these. Honestly, we live our lives praying very little, And then a crisis occurs and we scramble around asking dozens of people to, real quick, pray real hard for a crisis. Except for the end of his life, Saul acts just like that. God, give me guidance. But when you do, and I don't like the end of it, I'll do my own thing. 
God, give me victory over my enemies, but when I'm done, I'll set up a monument to myself. Maybe I'll start a podcast or a blog about how I was successful. Lord, give me what I want, but don't be surprised if I act like you don't exist for 99% of my life. Here at the end, Saul sees only what he's always seen. He's actually surprisingly consistent now. All he sees is the horizontal life in front of him and not the God who is intertwined and moving all around him. Saul was a king like the other nations through and through to the end. He acted only on what he saw in the moment and in this moment he did not see a God who delivers. He merely saw a sword in his hand and the only back door he thought he had. We have to sidestep for a moment and kind of deal with the elephant in the room. Saul's suicide. The the, uh, writer of Samuel doesn't say a word about it. He just reports what happened. In In a room the size of this one, with as many people as we have in here, I'm under no illusion that there's not more than a few of us that at some point in our lives, if not right now, have been in a place similar to Saul. And I don't mean with enemies around us, but feeling like we have no escape. Life is hard. Circumstances and tragedies sometimes visit us so intensely that it's not uncommon to despair and want relief in any form. And the writer of Samuel doesn't tell us whether Saul was right or wrong. He merely reports what happens. There's actually seven, I think there's six other places in Scripture. And, and Scripture never really comments on whether it's morally just. But in the background, if we, if we look at the subtext or the, the background, it's always tragic. It's always an act of desperation, devoid of faith. If you read this and you think to yourself that this is an acceptable way to get out of your suffering, you're reading it wrong. Saul, Saul's story is recorded here as an example of what not to do with God and man, not an example to follow. He acts out of fear from a person who never really saw God for who he really is. So in contrast, we see David time and time again seek the Lord for comfort from his enemies. Jesus does the same thing. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Son of God says, if there's any other way for this to happen, please let it be. He seeks strength. We must do the hard work of sympathizing and finding out what drives people to this place. We must do that hard work. But for those who follow through with it, it's not commendable. And if you're sitting here today, and you might be, somebody, and you feel like you're in a deep, dark hole and there's no way out, I want to implore you, please just reach out to someone. I've been at EBF for almost, I think, 12 years. And in that time, I've been through more than one difficult situation. I've despaired at times for my marriage. I've despaired for the life of one of my children. And I've watched people sitting next to you. Some of them are gone now, but there's new ones here now that came alongside and they helped me rebuild. And they, they came alongside and they carried my family. Please reach out to someone. So let's read on, verse 8. The next day... When the Philistines came to strip the slain, they, fought, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, they stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and their people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul... All their valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan 
And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Well, what, in the, what is going on here? First of all, just as Saul had feared, the Philistines desecrated his body. They used it as some sort of sick trophy that they, they cut off the head and they fastened his body to the wall of their city along with his sons. It's a, it's a remember, remembrance for them of what they've been able to accomplish that day. So just as Saul has feared, they did this. Early in his career, though, let's remember Saul's greatest hit. If Saul was a one-hit wonder, it was when he actually liberated the, uh, the people of Jabesh. He fought against the Philistines, and he liberated these people. And so these people, when they hear about what the Philistines have done to their king, the king they remember as the man who delivered them, they honored him, and they honored the God who put him there, and they honored the God who sent him to deliver them from the oppression of their enemies. Later, when David hears of Saul's death, again in 2 Samuel, he does not celebrate. And if you know the story here, if you've been following this, nobody has reason to celebrate more than David at the death of Saul. He's been running from him unnecessarily. He was a loyal, uh, a loyal general, and he's been running. In fact, Saul has been pursuing him and not the Philistines. And so you'd think uh, David would hold his sword above his head in some you know, gladiator fashion and say, well, it's finished, I can ascend the throne. But he's not worried about his succession. He says this in 2 Samuel 1.19, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. David's concern, hear this, his first concern is for the name of his God and the reputation of his God. He does not celebrate. He does not scorn. When God's anointed has been cut down, it's never a reason to rejoice. To dishonor God's anointed leader is to show dishonor to the God who put them there. And at this point in his career, David shows that a supremely God-centered view of the monarchy he was about to take. Many of you have followed the story this week of the hacking of an online website called Ashley Madison. Um, it's, I guess you could call it a hookup service for would-be adulterers. Their tagline is, life is short, have an affair. Um, and, and evidently a hacker got in, got their database and credit card numbers and released it online and, and people are sifting through it and coming out with names. And I, as I kind of read some of the articles, I came across one by a guy named Ed Stetzer and he, he's an author, a researcher, I think foremost, and, and also a pastor. And he estimated, I don't know how he comes to this number, but he said, statistically, he believes that three to 400 pastors would resign in the coming weeks due to being publicly, publicly outed for their involvement in the service. I, I have no idea how he comes to the numbers. But that proposed statistic, if that's true, three to 400 pastors should cause us to mourn, if he's correct. Grief and lament for stifling the word of good news to the culture around us. It should cause us to mourn. We need to be careful not to dance on the graves of our fallen leaders. Grief and lament is our response. When we see David on his knees lamenting the celebration he knew his enemies were doing, he grieves. I want to end with this. There may be some or more likely many of you in this room who after experiencing the story of Saul for the last few weeks and months that you're convinced that you're headed for a life and possible death like him. I jokingly told Jason in the uh, 
corridors down here a few weeks ago, I said, uh, anytime I hear about the story of Saul, I think I'm him. Meandering my way through life, convincing myself that I'm serving God, but living a self-deluded and self-serving existence. I can't stand the story of Saul. If you're sitting here and you're thinking that you can never break out of your own self-imposed cycle of sin and suffering, first of all, remember you're not alone. It's in our nature to come into this place and whitewash our outsides and put up our favorite pictures of ourselves with nice clean clothes on. Instead of this feeling like a battlefield hospital, we act like it's a job interview and we have our glowing resume in our hand when we sit down here. So don't fool yourselves. You're not alone in this room. Don't follow in the footsteps of the king like the other nations. We need to believe in a God who restores, the God who heals, the God who has already raised up another leader to deliver us, a leader after his own heart. We need to remember in our darkest hours that we serve a God who literally sent his own son to die for our sin and our deserved death. That's the God we serve, and that's not Saul's God. Listen to the prophet Joel as he speaks about the impending judgment of God. And I want us to end with this and make this our prayer. Listen to this. Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Listen, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The last part. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would cut into our lives and rid, of, rid us of wrong thoughts about you. Rid us of the fears in our lives of our enemies. And give us a godly fear of you, a realization that you are our loving creator. God, help us to repent and to not be like the king, like the other nations. And turn and to be more like David, a man after your own heart. And give us faith in your son, Jesus.